Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So now we get to the funding portion of the program. The... uh, comprehensive aid package that had been telegraphed was more formally pitched yesterday, uh, in particular by animatronic Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, appearing before the Senate Appropriations, before the Senate Appropriations Committee, articulating the case for the $106 billion in aid that Mr. 10%, the big guy President Biden, seeks for Ukraine for Israel, for Taiwan, for the border. Take a listen to uh, Blinken's case and see if you find it compelling. Thank you. So to continue, uh, since Russia launched this war, the robust funding provided uh, by Congress has enabled the people of Ukraine in their courageous fight to defend their nation. It's helped make sure that Russia's invasion is a strategic debacle making it weaker in nearly every way. And it's rallied the world in defense of Ukraine and of the principles at the heart of the United Nations Charter, sovereignty, territorial independence, integrity, excuse me, and independence. Our partners are making significant contributions to share the burden of assistance. Turning our backs on their efforts would have lasting implications for our own security and our own standing in the world. The conflicts in Ukraine and the Middle East have clear links, as both uh, the chair and vice chair have noted. Since we cut off Russia's traditional means of supplying its military, it's turned more and more to Iran for assistance. In return, Moscow has supplied Iran with increasingly advanced military technology, which poses a threat to Israel's security. Allowing Russia to prevail, with Iran's support, will simply embolden both Moscow and Iran. Second, this funding will enable us to tackle grave humanitarian needs created by autocrats and terrorists, as well as by conflict and natural disasters in Ukraine in Gaza, in Sudan, in Armenia, and other places around the world. Food, water, medicine, other essential humanitarian assistance for civilians must be able to flow into Gaza. Civilians must be able to stay out of harm's way, a task that's made even more difficult as Hamas uses civilians as human shields, and humanitarian pauses must be considered. Helping prevent a worsening humanitarian catastrophe aligns with our nation's most deeply held principles including our belief that every civilian life is equally valuable, equally worthy of protection. Without swift and sustained humanitarian relief, the conflict is much more likely to spread. Suffering will grow, and Hamas and its sponsors will benefit by fashioning themselves as the saviors of the very desperation that they created. Humanitarian assistance is also vital to Israel's security. Providing immediate aid and protection for Palestinian civilians in this conflict is a necessary foundation for finding partners in Gaza who have a different vision for the future than Hamas 
and who are willing to help make it real. Third, this funding is critical to outcompeting our strategic rivals. This request will bolster deterrence. It will support our allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific to address threats from an increasingly assertive PRC and to meet emerging challenges. Outcompeting our strategic rivals, that's a, that's a fun phrase. Uh, what do you think of uh, animatronic Anthony's three-point argument? It's uh, to prevent emboldening Iran and China. It's to provide the humanitarian aid consistent with our values. And it's uh, to outcompete our strategic rivals, which is sort of which is... a different uh, version of point one. But regardless, that's that's the case that's being made. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line, or you can also text us all morning long on our turnkey dot pro text line six four six three six. Type in D A, then a quick comment. Uh, well, there's a couple of issues. There's well, there's more than a couple of issues. I mean, one would be some sort of recognition as he's uh, talking about um, the financing of these unholy actors, Hamas and Putin, and uh, then the puppet masters above them in Tehran and Beijing. Um, one way to uh, Stop emboldening uh, these bad actors. Strategic rivals, I guess, is the phrase we're supposed to use, is for us to stop funding them. I mean, here's just sort of a first-order problem I have with the ruling class approach to these matters. There's no recognition of the mistakes that we made uh, and the pork policy choices that we made, and so there's little prospect that policy choices will improve. So, right, um, would you like to revisit the amount of aid that we've provided to the residents of Gaza, ostensibly to the residents of Gaza, that we provided through the UN, through UN programs, we, the United States, have provided, that we knew was... Going straight to Hamas. Going straight to Hamas. Yes. So that's number one. Can, Can we get an accounting for that? It's just glossed over. Number two, obviously, with Iran, we know this well. This has been a decade in the making, going back to Obama terms one and two, with the glide path to nuclearization, the uh, the, the drop shipping of cash in the middle of the night during Obama, the six billion dollars for hostages under the big guy, the energy policy where we have reduced our domestic production and gone begging around the world from Caracas to Riyadh for certainly strategic rivals at a minimum to help us with our energy needs. Meanwhile, allowing Putin and the mullahs in Tehran to exponentially increase their oil exports and finance so much of their bad actions, finance their invasion of Ukraine, finance their sponsorship of terrorism in the Middle East and the world over. Is there going to be a reckoning for that? No, we didn't hear much on that, did we? And the new speaker uh, wants to, <clears throat> excuse me, remove $14.3 billion of funding from the IRS to send aid to Israel. He wants to separate this out. 
Well, that's a whole separate thing. I mean, one, uh, the Israeli funding issue, uh, and I, I thought Leah Leibowitz uh, from Tablet Magazine yesterday uh, made a really interesting case. You know, I mean, he is is he is a Israeli immigrant. He is certainly pro Israel and for the eradication of Hamas. But he argued um, uh, America should stop funding everybody in the Middle East. Right. Stop funding Iran, obviously. Stop funding Hamas indirectly, clearly. Stop allowing Qatar to fund our universities. That's a good idea. But also stop funding Israel because Israel doesn't need the funding. It's a nice symbolic gesture of support and brotherhood. But all that you're really doing is subsidizing your defense contractors, and we don't need it. We'll, we'll do it ourselves. Okay. I'm certainly willing to listen to that argument. Um, so, I mean, in addition to that, just the reality on the ground. I mean, just this week, people are stealing like there's no tomorrow. A top advisor speaking to Time magazine said about the Zelensky administration. Officials do not feel any fear of engaging in corruption because of the firing of Reznikov, the defense minister. And others took over six months after Zelensky was warned that the defense ministry was drowning in graft. Another advisor reportedly told Time Zelensky acted. Uh, by the time Zelensky acted, it was too late. The corruption scandal had not only become known in the Western capitals, but also among soldiers on the front line. Where troops began, troops reportedly began making lewd jokes about Reznikov's eggs, a reference to the accusation the defense ministry had vastly overpaid for basic items such as eggs and coats for soldiers. The report claims uh, notes claims by officials that Zelensky's office has worked to stop giving the impression of corruption, but um, but that belies the underlying reality is essentially what they're arguing. So um, before you send another $61.5 billion to Ukraine, when they uh, seem to be, I mean, I'm not hearing a lot of uh, rosy scenarios from Ukraine, even from you know proponents of blank checks. But, but before you send another $61 billion, just even setting aside what impact that would have if it was used to maximum effect, um, even Steve Bucci from the Heritage Foundation, which is who's open-minded on it, certainly not reflexively uh, opposed to continuing to provide aid to to Ukraine, said, you know, we need sort of a line-by-line accounting for how this money is going to be spent and some sort of mechanism for ensuring that, you know, it is so at least approximately. So we're not just uh, you know funding. Uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous in the upper reaches of the Zelensky administration. And was there any talk of that? No. See, the uh, the unwillingness to confront what the hoi polloi out here in the hustings knows about what the government has done, uh, the reports about what other governments are doing with our money, the unwillingness to confront that. We're just going to walk past it and pretend that Nobody sees or hears anything. That doesn't inspire confidence. And yeah, I question whether that sort of approach 
merits support, even if you're sympathetic to the, the, uh, the, you know, the potential underlying beneficiaries. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We're talking about uh, all the stars that were out yesterday to make the pitch to Congress and to the American people that... uh, we should spend and send another $106 billion of your money to Israel, to Ukraine, Ukraine being the majority of those dollars, uh, Taiwan, and also we'll throw in a little bit for the border. That's how they're trying to sell skeptical Republicans is we'll give you a billion dollars for border security. We'll get to that in a second. But it wasn't just animatronic Anthony Blinken out making the case, including the moral play. Humanitarian aid, these are our values. Humanitarian pauses. By the way, all this talk about we don't support a ceasefire, but we do support humanitarian pauses. What's a humanitarian pause? It's a ceasefire. Um, Anyway, I digress. But One more parenthetical comment about Tony Blinken. Did you see what he did yesterday? Which time I was? The White House Halloween party. His four-year-old son, yeah, he's got a four-year-old kid. He's like De Niro. His four-year-old son dressed up as Zelensky. Uh, I mean, could you be a bigger knob? What? <laughs> could you I have be to look a this up? Could you be a bigger stroke than to dress your? You're the Secretary of State, and you dress your kid up as Zelensky. Uh, it, it's really something. Yeah, he's it's, it's he's uh, sixty one. He's got a four year old and a three year old. Uh, hello. How about that? And he plays the guitar. What was he? He was jamming out on something the other day at the White House. Yeah, they're so uh, talented. They're mm-hmm. and his uh, his wife, she's oh. fifty two. I look this up. Um, his wife is the cabinet secretary, secretary to the cabinet uh, officials. Evan Ryan is her name. Huh. Interesting. Dressing Zelensky, dressing your kid up as Zelensky. It doesn't, I mean, Army Green, yeah. But that's, a, that's come on. That's what he was doing. 
Uh, maybe he's going to send his kid uh, around uh, the Capitol going door to door with a tin can trying to raise that $61 billion. Oh, he's so cute. Let's give him a billion dollars of other people's money. Uh, all his right. His daughter it, was dressed like Snow White. Uh, I'm sure the uh, the new and improved and woke Snow White. But regardless, the um, other stars that were out, Lloyd Austin, your sec def, and of course, Christopher Ray, your FBI director, who has um, a newfound concern about the shoddy border security. But as I said a few moments ago, on top of the homegrown violent extremists and domestic violent extremist threat, we also cannot and do not discount the possibility that Hamas or another foreign terrorist organization may exploit the current conflict to conduct attacks here on our own soil. We have kept our sights on Hamas and have multiple ongoing investigations into individuals affiliated with that foreign terrorist organization. Oh, interesting. Well, I'm glad that he's able to report on some ongoing investigations because I know he can't confirm or deny the existence of investigations when it comes to Biden Incorporated, but uh, he can when it comes to Hamas-affiliated terrorists in this country. That's good to know. Anybody um, want to want to take this one in terms of uh, what the predicate question is to this discussion of terrorists entering our country? Uh, well, now he's realizing Hamas is, you know, it's just as bad as ISIS, if not worse, and that they're here. We assess that the actions of Hamas and its allies will serve as an inspiration, the likes of which we haven't seen since ISIS. Uh-huh. So the predicate question now. Anybody want to tackle the predicate question here? Peter Ducey tried with uh, National Security Council spokeswoman John Kirby. John Kirby did a, the best job he could playing dumb. Uh, the CBP in San Diego said militants associated with the Israel-Hamas war uh, may be potentially encountered at the southwest You're talking about border. the San Diego? Yeah. yeah. At, look, Is there so, any heartburn around here? 600,000 known gotaways just in the last fiscal year. Yeah. Is there any heartburn about leaving the border in such a condition that... One of those 600,000 could be a terrorist. So let me just break this down for you just a little bit here. First of all, I can't speak to this intelligence report that was leaked to the media. I wouldn't do that. Um, I can tell you that we are constantly monitoring as best we can all ports of entry to the country uh, uh, for the potential arrival of anybody who might wish us harm. And one of the things that the president asked for in this supplemental was additional funding for border security there it for is. like 1500 more border patrol agents and better technology at the at the border i mean so again we would urge congress to take a look at that supplemental request and pass it but if the general gist of your question is are we taking the potential threat seriously of course no, we are the general gist was is it possible that somebody who wants to commit a terrorist attack during a time of elevated threat crossed the southern border into the united states already I couldn't possibly answer that question, Peter. All I can do is tell you that we are we have remained vigilant to that potential threat. Is the 1.7 million gotaways in the country during this president, and the response is we remain vigilant. We take this seriously, and I can't tell you. So 
Your FBI director just said we have open investigations into Hamas-related terrorist activity. Hamas is here. And and your response is, I couldn't possibly tell you, despite the 250 stops of individuals on the terrorist watch list in fiscal year 2023, I couldn't, and, and 1.7 million, against the backdrop of 1.7 million got away, 600,000 last fiscal year, I couldn't possibly tell you if anybody got into this country because of the lack of enforcement of our border. Uh, do they not have... even watch the news? Like, do, watch Fox on the weekends or watch CNN. You could see there's porous borders. There's places where they even cut down the barbed wire where people are just walking in. So could you hazard a guess, John? Do you think it's possible? Let me ask you it another way. Would it be more likely or less likely that terrorists would enter this country if we had border security that prevented 600,000 gotaways last year. Could you, could you work the logic there? Could you give us an answer on that? I mean, the suspension of disbelief that is required to listen to the answers from these individuals, and you, then John Kirby did the pivot, real subtle, all the subtlety of a sledgehammer. Uh, that's why you got to pass the $106 billion because in there's a billion dollars for border security, an indication we take this so seriously. Are you persuaded? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, not persuaded. She was on with Larry Kudlow, and she had uh, more updated data for you to pour over. And for John Kirby to pour over, too, since he can't possibly comment on this or that while uh, other members of the administration or members of Congress are providing this detail. Marsha Blackburn on Kudlow yesterday. Now, in 2023, we had people from 180 different countries. We have had 250-something known terrorists that have been apprehended at the southern border. We know that there are thousands of people that are termed a person of interest that has, they've come in, they've claimed asylum, they've been released into the country. This is a really bad soup in the making. And And if you're looking at all these individuals that, and we don't know about what is happening with the unknowns, the gotaways, uh, the terrorists that might be in those numbers. Eduardo, Tampa Bay. Yeah, good morning. You had a 5,000 caravan heading up north. And keep in mind, all those resources from Mexico are going into Acapulco for that hurricane cleanup. So I doubt they're going to be guarding those people very good. Well, not to mention who's pressuring Mexico to do it the way that uh, Trump did with AMLO during his term. Uh, The Biden administration pressuring Mexico to uh, uh, help them on the other side of the southern border. I haven't heard that of you in Mexico. No. Well, VP Harris is supposed to be in charge, right? Oh, she's getting to root causes. You know, oh, she's working okay. those northern triangle northern countries triangle. to get to root causes. Yeah. Well, we don't need that right now. We need to stop people from flooding into this country. George Naperville. Yeah, this will be convenient for Biden. He can uh, blame the Israeli conflict if we have a terrorist attack here. Thanks for the call, George. Uh, with respect to this uh, construct of a comprehensive aid package. And again, I think, you know, the money is really secondary 
it's more the principle. I mean, $106 billion is $106 billion. But in the grand scheme of what this government spends, I think the government spent $6.3 billion last year and had about $4.8 trillion, excuse me, $6.3 trillion last year, had about $4.8 trillion in revenue. So, and, and even if you look at the discretionary, the proposed discretionary budget for fiscal year 2024, it's something like $1.8 trillion. So $100 billion is not nothing, but uh, as uh, you mentioned about Mike Johnson talking about pulling $15 billion from the IRS right. to send to Israel and so on and so forth. I mean, you certainly don't need to print more money. Uh, you you certainly don't need to uh, – you certainly can do what Johnson is suggesting with the Israeli aid and a take from – any other agency or several agencies to provide this if you really wanted to do it while sort of holding the spend harmless. That's not really the point. The point is whether uh, this makes any sense. Do, if it's if it was one dollar, does it make any sense? I sort of want to separate the money for a second because um, I think that's definitely a secondary or tertiary issue. But the, this is uh, getting some bipartisan support on Capitol Hill, which uh, should remind people how difficult the speaker's job is with a narrow majority. Because over on the Senate side, you got uh, Mitch McConnell saying that, you know, he and Schumer basically agree on the framework and now the devil's in the details. Conceptually, conceptually. Senator Schumer and I are in the same place in the sense that we view all of these problems as connected. Ukraine is part of it. Obviously, Israel enjoys overwhelming support, but we think it's also important that we have a part related to Asia, and that's Taiwan. And then, as several of my members have underscored, we think it's important to be to do something credible about our own uh, border, which is basically wide open. So conceptually, I think Schumer and I are in the same place. In terms of the details, what is really needed to protect the border? Not a bunch of money going to Chicago and New York, but something seriously drafted. And we're working on that, and I think the Democrats will have to accept a really serious U.S.-Mexico border protection bill in order uh, to get our people on on board for a comprehensive approach. No, they won't have to accept anything serious because you're talking about just throwing a billion dollars at it. But we're going to hire more personnel. We're going to call that border security when everybody who's been following this knows that it doesn't matter because of the underlying policies that are that prevent Border Patrol from enforcing immigration law. That they're, they're not on the front line. They're not on the line. They're doing paperwork to process all the uh, quote unquote asylum seekers. Uh, not to mention the, uh, uh, the those that are uh, uh, g- uh, 
you know, ha- you have to run through and do the background checking and so on and so forth. They're, 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 I mean, Tom Homan told us this when he last appeared on the program. They're working in the office as administrators. They're not on the border as law enforcement. I mean, hell, you've got to have the state of Texas sue to be able to put up its own sections of barriers to uh, on the border to prevent the entrance of of people uh, into this country illegally. And and this is this is the misdirection that the big spenders, including Republicans like McConnell, are attempting to perpetuate to uh, perpetrate. And and I don't think most Republicans are going to buy it. Marvin, Burlington, Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I really hope that they don't buy it. I mean, uh, the report this morning concerning a uh, uh, guided missile anti-tank weapon. I mean, I know what it costs just to buy my little meager uh, amounts of ammo. Uh, these people are awash in money. They don't need any more. And uh, I'd like to also to know how many people are trying to get out of the Gaza that have dual citizenship. Well, they let are, some people related- out today. They let there's well, yeah, yeah, well some reports there's 500 me. Americans that are there and there's other reporting that there's about a thousand. But they some are yeah yeah them. yeah. But are they Americans? Are they are they really Americans? There's a woman from Chicago who's very American with a just Chicago a accent just, who's there with five blah, kids. Blah, blah. Oh, you don't just blah 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 me. I'm you want to know the truth? Do you want to live in a bubble? Okay. You know what, woman? You you, you need some real uh, you need some education. How many of these people have dual citizenship and their loyalty to lie with Hamas, and they just have a happen to have an American passport because their husbands are uh, big wheels with Hamas who are awash in money that can afford anti tank weapons. I mean, uh, it, you know, it, it's 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 ridiculous. This thing should be voted down. Ukraine is a nothing but an absolute money laundering scheme for people in. In, uh, in in Washington, D.C. And uh, I, I hope to God someday somebody wakes up and, and exposes all this nonsense. You know? Thanks for the call, Marvin. And Marvin, we don't know if they're, they're stuck in a war zone, so we don't know their status right now on their passports, if they have dual citizenship. Bob and Grace Lake. Yeah, well, you got to remember that uh, when Trump ran for office, I thought he was. Uh, I thought 2% of what he gave us as Americans would be better than the 0% that that uh, Hillary Clinton or now Joe Biden has given us. Uh, Biden is the the biggest arms dealer in the world after his Afghanistan debacle. He's the biggest human trafficker. Alejandro, my joke ass, on the southern border, uh, runs the Department of Homeland Insecurity. And Margaret Thatcher said, you know, Democrats never run out of other people's money. Uh, Biden and his administration are the biggest threat to American existence. Democrats don't believe in our Democratic Republic at all. Thanks for the call, Bob. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to podcast of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630. 
3-6-30 or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. You heard it on Mike Scott's newscast. Yes, Chicago Police Chief Larry Snelling saying of the Halloween party shooter in North Lawndale over the weekend. He was a convicted felon. He shouldn't have had a gun, but he did have a gun. And he shot 15 people. And thankfully, all of them survived. Thankfully, he's a terrible shot. But why are they choosing this mass shooting to make a big deal about it? You know, Brandon Johnson wasn't supposed to show up, and then he showed up at the press conference last minute, didn't take any questions. They're acting like this is... Why is it a big deal if 15 people get shot at a Halloween party? No, and nobody died. I'm just saying we have more. Well, we have a lot of mass shootings and, and babies getting shot while their parents are dealing with, you know, road rage incidents, getting shot in cars. And it's just their selective anger is so strange to me. And then Kim Fox showing up saying, oh, my God, we should be shocked. This should be shocking to our systems. This should shake us to our core. Is that bad? I'm not shaken to the core, or am I just become immune to this? Yeah, people get a nerd to it. I understand, and they get a nerd to the rhetoric coming from politicians about how aghast they are, while um, this guy who shouldn't have had a gun and does have a two-decade rap sheet uh, that features things like being convicted of attempted murder in 2008, nine felonies. I wonder why he's out. I felt like saying, you did this. You know the sticker with the gas prices with the Biden face? I felt like saying, you did this. And then Mayor Johnson had to act all in, oh, this is awful. When violence like this disrupts our city, it's literally at our front doors. Profound. Uh, uh, Um, Convicted of being a felon in possession of a firearm and narcotics in 2000. Convicted of agri- Aggravated battery and theft from a person in 2003. He, can't, he was mad because he got kicked out of the party. It was a comedian's party, and it was in a neighborhood in an area that's um, – this spot has been – they've had problems at this location before. People host parties at this location. Yeah, well, they, you're going to have problems if you have a 48-year-old who thinks the response to not being invited to the party is to shoot up the place. That is going to create some problems. Um, the uh, the authorities don't know how uh, this guy happened upon possession of a gun, but they're working on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and in the meantime, there are these competing groups of people that are there, you know, um, trauma counselors. There was service animals there, petting dogs that were there yesterday to help people, you know, cope with this mass shooting when one suffers, we all suffer. And the same takes place for healing. If we can heal together, we will heal. What we're out here also trying to do is provide assistance and resources that can help people in the community and also help change the trajectory of the violence. How's it going? How's Nobody it going was changing there. that trajectory? This was not in a neighborhood. This is in like an industrial area. 
I mean, there's a few houses, but this, they're so off the mark on this and providing counseling. The people that well, were shot don't live in that neighborhood. Well, well uh, they're at a party. Well, well, you also saw 15 people shot. I mean, I, that would probably be a traumatic event for right. some people. Do you think they're going to go back to the people. scene, though, to go have counseling? I don't I, 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 is that the point? Is that really material? This new for, new way of policing. What policing? No, I'm just saying what, how they're uh, going to help. They're you know sending social workers out, and you know I just don't a, I don't a, want a, my tax dollars going to that. I'm sorry, that just seemed like a complete waste. Yeah, um, like I don't know. Men standing out in the middle of the street wearing these vests, and there's nobody walking around the street because nobody lives there. So performative. Everything in this city is so, oh, knee-jerk reaction. Oh, no, we're going to have a press conference on this shooting. Well, again, I I would anticipate some comment and, frankly, uh, expect some comment from law enforcement when 15 people get shot at a Halloween party. I don't know about you. I'm not quite that a nerd. I, I expect a comment from the DuPage County Sheriff's Office when 23 people get shot at a allegedly a Juneteenth party, and one and and one is killed. I expect some comment on that. What, what like for example, uh, what do we know about this guy? And if he was a convicted felon, how did he get this weapon? We're working on it. And uh, what is the policing like in that neighborhood? And what do we know about an unsanctioned party at an unsanctioned location? And how did that happen? Where they've had problems in the past. Uh, so, no, I, I do have questions. Okay. And I, I do want to hear, particularly from law enforcement, I could go without the uh, cut-and-paste statements from the politicians, and that includes you know, alleged members of the criminal justice system like Kim Fox. I could go without that. I'll grant you that. But, no, I, I, I want to hear it because um, I want – than other polit- other people in positions of authority and just in general that have platforms in the city to comment, to comment on how come the assault weapon ban so heroically passed by Governor Spaulding and his merry band of socialist goons in Springfield didn't prevent this. I want to know what they're going to do about it because we have to do something. So, as I've said before, their, uh, our vice president, their fellow traveler, Kamala Harris, she insinuated a proposal last week. And who's going to have the stones to take it up? That's what I want to know. Chicago seems like the ideal place to do it. Illinois seems like the ideal place to do it, doesn't it? I mean, oh, well... Uh, if we do what Kamala Harris said, we have faced the potential of litigation. Um, the assault weapon ban that was passed, to no objection, is being litigated. You're not afraid of litigation when it comes to providing public safety. That's that's your highest order priority. That's what you're completely focused on. I know Kim Fox is completely focused on violent crime. Completely focused on on violent crime. Her research office is completely focused on violent crime because she's told us. So why not pick up what Kamala Harris is laying down? In our country today, the leading cause of death of American children is gun violence. 
Gun violence has terrorized and traumatized so many of our communities in this country. And let us be clear, it does not have to be this way, as our friends in Australia have demonstrated. And with that, then. Yeah, right. Yay, yay, exactly. Yay. Right. So mandatory gun buyback. Mandatory gun buyback, uh, which uh, comports with uh, uh, seizure laws and a ban on all semi-automatic weapons like Australia did. And then we can be like Australia. But we wouldn't be saving kids. I mean, the victims in this case, and luckily they're all alive, range in age from 26 to 53. And it just hit me while you were playing that soundbite why they did this, what, this big press conference yesterday. It's because they all commented on social media about the main mass shooting. And we're hit pretty hard. Like, well, why don't you care about the shootings here in Chicago? Why don't you care? In Maine, 18 people sadly lost their lives. 15 people were shot because this clown got kicked out of a party because he got in a fight with somebody and came back with a gun. This alleged man, he's not a man. So, again, challenging the do-something crowd to do something. I mean, uh, David Hogg, David Hogg, Mm -hmm. Parkland High School survivor and gun-banning enthusiast, Harvard-educated. David Hogg uh, has a question, and I agree with him. I agree with him for asking this question. He's got, he basically, um, channeling Cleavon Little, said this. Hey, where are the white women at? He uh, tweeted, uh, we will never end gun violence until white women in the suburbs stop voting for the Republicans who are endangering our schools and communities by flooding them with guns. Exactly. So um, if we can't get uh, indigenous leadership from the city, how about the white women in the suburbs lead the charge to move Kamala Harris' suggestion in Chicago and Illinois. Mandatory gun buyback, ban on all semi-automatic weapons, including handguns, which was more likely than not the weapon of choice in this shooting in North Lawndale. We don't know yet. It hasn't been reported, at least. I haven't seen it. But, but certainly that is the weapon of choice in most of the murders in Chicago. And in other mid-sized urban centers around the state that have crime problems, your Aurora's and your Rockford's and your East St. Louis's. So let's do it. Come on, awfuls. One of the Chardin victims. Antifa in the, Chardin Antifa in the suburbs. Okay. 312-642-5600, Pro answer line. One of the shooters, Paris Brown, who goes by Tree, uh, was shot in the back. Luckily, he's alive. He spoke to Channel 7. One of the victims. Not one of the, the I'm sorry. One of the victims. Excuse me. He said he kept hearing the shooter shooting, and he didn't know if it was ever going to stop. And did you see the video of it? I mean, it looks... It was so... If Did you see it, Dan, after the shooting, the video that came out? and Yeah, I saw it. The floor. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the point. I, uh, Fifteen people were shot. I, I, I mean, th- seriously, that's a walk away? No, what is, I don't. Phil and Darian, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. way too long. Hey, good morning, guys. Listen, Dan, all the questions that you want answers to, okay? Why did this guy have a gun? He's a convicted felon. All them questions that you want answers to, you can't get them because the answers are all racist. 
Wouldn't you guys agree? And let me make another point. Wouldn't you guys also agree that there's more people killed of drunk drivers than there is of gun bullets? Now, you don't see anybody trying to ban alcohol, do you? Have a nice day, guys. Thanks for the call, Phil. Uh, I don't know. The number of people killed by DUI drivers in Chicago on an annualized basis, is that over 600? I'll check right now, but I don't. The, uh, the only good news about this is that um, he's being held without bond. They're not letting him leave. Well, it's good. It's that's, good that's that finally after six times. It's, it's good now, that. Now it's hitting home. It's good that there's a shoot 15 people exception to the Safety Act. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Very encouraging. Yep, yep. I thought you'd like that. Yeah. Art, Southwest Side. Yeah, I just want to uh, piggyback on your point about these uh, politicians. For example, tonight uh, there was a homicide on 82nd, and from that homicide, there was a like uh, a chase, running gun, gun battle through the uh, southeast side. Got another shooting related to that homicide on on Garfield, and then a third, a fourth person shot at uh, 62nd, all related to that uh, to that homicide. So. It's like it's window dressing by these politicians all the time. Never sincere. Thanks for the call, Art. That's why I'm asking for sincerity by doing something. That's the response from the hoi polloi to all of these things. Do something. Well, here's a something they can do. Why won't they do it? Maybe they should be challenged on that. Uh, in 2020, Roland. oh, I'm sorry. I'm just an update in 220, 2020, 254 people died in DUIs in Chicago. Roland in uh, Arlington Heights. Oh, wait, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Phil in Maryville. All right. Yay, morning, guys. Uh, you said this guy was convicted of attempted murder? In 2008. Why is he, he, in 2008. Yeah, well, why isn't he locked up for 10-plus 10, 10 years and then well, on top of it? In 2008, I mean, he was convicted. It's 15 years ago. Yeah, he probably got a light sentence, and then on top of it, my thing is they need stronger laws on the books with mandatory sentences for these animals. And I don't care if there's a prison on every block. Build more prisons, hire more guards, lock them up. That's taxpayer money well spent. Thank you. Thanks, Phil. Uh, Now Roland in Arlington Heights. Uh, Good morning, guys. You know and I know this uh, this guy will never be consecutive for 15 charges. It'll be all uh, concurrent. Concurrent, yeah. Thanks and you. The, thanks for the call, Roland. Um, yeah, I mean the the Cook County judges. It's a whole another problem. Starting with the chief judge who wants a special young adult court for 18 to 26 year olds. Now, obviously, this guy doesn't fit that age but i mean just speaks to the mentality leniency for violent criminals 18 to 26 because the uh, prefrontal cortex in men isn't uh, fully formed until it's actually i think a little older like 28 but regardless like you don't know right from wrong by the time you're 18 and so let's uh, let's treat this cohort which is uh, responsible young men for the preponderance of violent crime, preponderance, the supermajority of violent crime. Let's treat them with kit gloves because of their their uh, unfully formed front prefrontal cortex. I mean, this is literally Tim Evans's position. 
And and this thug, I mean, he's had arrests and convictions dating back to when he was 19 years old. Um, I just want to get this in, too, because this speaks to the culture here. Um, I want to introduce you to number 23, brought to us by CWB. That's just this year. The Chicago man has been jailed to await trial after prosecutors said he viciously stabbed his ex's new boyfriend while on bail for a pending felony gun case. On bail for a pending felony gun case. Commits an attempted murder. 23rd person accused of shooting, killing, or trying to shoot or kill someone in Chicago this year while awaiting trial for a felony. The cases involve at least 36, 37 victims, 11 of whom died. That's what should shock your conscience, to borrow from Kim Fox. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Thanks to a uh, FOI lawsuit, FOIA lawsuit, FOIA lawsuit from the uh, Southern Eastern Legal Foundation. The National Archives disclosed this week that it has located 82,000 pages of potentially government-related emails from one Joe Biden, a.k.a. Robin Ware, a.k.a. Bobby Peters. I like Bobby Peters the best. I think it's good Robert, but I mean, we're we're friendly. Bobby. Bobby's fine. That makes Hillary Clinton look pretty good, huh? Yeah. um, And this is uh, at at least, well, this this has to be attendant to his time in office. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a matter for the National Archives. So his time as vice president may be dating back to his time in the Senate, as we see uh, some of Biden Inc. operations dating back to uh, Mr. Tempersen's time in the Senate. You know, the thing that upsets me most about this. Robin Ware, Bobby Peters. Where's the spicy pseudonym? Your Carlos Danger, your Pierre Delecto. You know, where's the creativity? Pierre Delecto was uh, Mitt Romney, right? Correct. That yeah. fun guy. When I, mean, I look at even, him, I think that's a that's a good time right there. Well, even a milk toast guy like Mitt Romney came up with Pierre Delecto. Right. That's yeah. that's fun. It's provocative. The yeah. the most important part of all this is that everybody has fun this is entertainment it's not like this is you know important to the future of our republic or something like this you know all the hand-wringing from republicans about uh, corruption and a compromised administration because of family intake and the millions from america's enemies and their representatives you know that's not fun Pseudonyms are fun, or they can be, but not not if you use Robin Ware or Robert Peters. Come on. Never trust a guy with two first names. Uh, sure, uh, yeah, Robert for first Peters. rule of dating. Yeah. Uh, all right, for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by award-winning investigative journalist, founder of Just the News, justthenews.com. It's been on this story, of course. John Solomon, if that is your real name. John, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. <laughs> It is. I have no pseudonym in my email accounts, I promise you. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, uh, so Hillary Clinton had 33,000 pages that, you know, were accidentally yeah. wiped off a server. And and Joe was using pseudonyms, so prying eyes didn't uh, 
see the private conversations uh, that where in which he expressed his fondness for uh, Hunter and other people, Hunter Biden, the smartest guy he knows and other people. I mean, you know, should we be reading nefarious motives into this disclosure from the National Archives? We don't have the the records yet because it's going to take them a while to compile those 82,000 pages, they say, probably, you know, at least through November of next year, I'm sure. Um, but, yeah, oh, nefarious yeah. nefarious motives? Well, listen, let's start with the most obvious thing. We, no matter how this turns out, no matter what's contained in the emails, one thing we're certain of is that during the Obama years, uh, there was a complete role for thee and me, me which is for all federal employees, you're not supposed to use uh, private email except in rare circumstances. In the case of Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, they used it tens of thousands of times. Uh, and uh, it, it is a complete uh, rejection of the Federal Records Act and all of the guidance that every federal employee, including Joe Biden, including Hillary Clinton, got about how to properly conduct government business on official email. On a secondary level, because the reason those rules exist is that private email is so much easier to hack. Just ask John Podesta, who had his emails hacked during the middle of the 2016 election. Right. So they, they are now transmitting sometimes sensitive information, in the case of Hillary Clinton, classified information in an insecure manner, putting the nation's secrets or the nation's sensitive information at risk. And so there's an arrogance and a uh, rules for me and the phenomenon that no matter what turns out to be in these documents, and we'll get these documents. I've been working with the Southeastern Legal Foundation since 2021 to get these documents. We're now uh, have them identified, and we think the production could begin starting in January or February under our current schedule. But uh, it's a pretty extraordinary uh, stash of documents. And what we do know is some of the information that Joe Biden did transmit to his son from these private email accounts was extremely sensitive. I'll just give you one example because I think it gets lost in all this conversation. Back in 2014, the State Department uh, embassy in, in Turkey, uh, Turkey found out that an American was about to be uh, released from captivity. This has been a long-held American. It was a very sensitive situation. It could go either way, but the winds were blowing that he might be released. That ca embassy cable comes to the vice president's office it's sent to Joe Biden's private account. Joe Biden then sends it to his son, who we know was a drug addict and had a lot of problems, had trouble keeping his laptop even. Uh, and he sends that information there before the gentleman is released, putting that potential release in jeopardy. Uh, those are the sort of things that we know now that Joe Biden was transmitting to his son. Another time he transmits plans to have a conversation with the Ukrainian president before it happens. Again, a sensitive matter that a spy country would love to learn about. Uh, you know, an enemy of ours was spying on us, would love to learn about. He transmits that to his son. And, oh, by the way, his son had a lot of interest in Ukraine because he had the Ukrainian um, uh, business deal with uh, Burisma Holdings. So Joe Biden not only thumbed his nose at the law here, in some cases that are already public, he sent very sensitive information in an insecure channel. Well, do you think we'll find anything about 10% or paying the big guy in these emails? I don't. Based on what I've learned about the uh, the ethos of how the family business ran, almost everything like that was done verbally, right? It was very rare to see, uh, you know, downstream from them maybe with the business partners, they were more willing to put that in paper. But when it came to Joe and Hunter and James, uh, there was a code of really anything sensitive being talked privately or done privately, much like these loan payments, a new loan payment is going to come out today. We're going to learn about that later today. 
So I think the code was don't say very much about Joe Biden in email. And you even see Hunter Biden in a few cases say that. Let's be careful what we say about the big guy or dad. And so I think the code was kind of mafia style. We don't talk about that in email. Exactly. Exactly. It's the Tony Soprano code. Remember when he had to have that talk with Michael, when Michael wanted to go to Hollywood and make films? He said, what are you going to do, fax me? This is a face-to-face business. Uh, and so it is It is with the Bidens, except you're also not supposed to lose your laptop with incriminating information on it. But, you know, but, yeah. but uh, that's a rounding error, thanks to the power structure being what it is in D.C. So uh, on the production schedule, I'm just interested. I mean... You know, I, I just have the feeling that there's going to be an effort to put this on the production schedule that, uh, say, Pfizer is on for releasing all the information related to the development of the COVID vaccine, which is what was on a 60 or 80 year production timeline. Um, I mean, do, you said you, you expect to start getting the documents in January and February. Do you expect to get the full complement of documents uh, well in advance of next November? Well, what we're doing with the court in consultation with the Southeastern Legal Foundation, which brought this lawsuit in concert with us, uh, is we're going to, uh, they want to do what's called rolling productions, which is every month drop a certain thousand numbers of pages of documents. What we're, what we're asking to do, and I think the court is amenable to, is to uh, come up with the topic areas that we think are most important. Anything that mentions Ukraine, Burisma, Russia, Romania, any of the countries where Hunter Biden was doing, any of that business partners' names or the associates overseas whose names are there. That uh, So what we could do is use our acquired knowledge from the last three years of covering this scandal to tell the National Archives and the courts which documents they should release first. Usually the government is amenable to that. That's sort of how Judicial Watch did some of the Hillary Clinton emails. Uh, and it gives us a chance to get at things that we know are relevant to the current conversations before the election, I know that always can be abused. I'm not naive about that. And I also think, uh, and you look at uh, late last night, uh, Congressman James Comer, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, said, hey, I'm going to get these from a different direction. He's going to use the power of the gavel, he said, to get these documents. So the FOIA lawsuit and Congress together, we've got a fighting chance of getting a good amount of these documents out before uh, voters choose their next president next November. Fair enough. Um the uh, the loans you just right. mentioned the loans um so yeah. you know the loans seem to be um one of the features of the biden incorporated operation uh, you know joe loans money to jim and and jim you know pays him back we're told uh a chinese businessman loans a quarter million dollars to hunter and then his hollywood lawyer kevin morris assumes the loan debt um, so right. uh, anything troubling about uh, loans between friends and family members? Well, listen, I think James Comer hit this on the head a couple of weeks ago in the interview I did with him on my TV show, and he said a loan in the, Mexico, uh, in the Biden lexicon really means gift or income. And why does he say that? Well, first off, uh, you mentioned the story that we broke earlier this week where Hunter Biden gets a $250,000 loan from a Chinese businessman and someone else assumes the debt for him, his Hollywood lawyer friend. But it's, it's actually much more consequential when it comes to federal law. Why do I say that? Because in uh, uh, the construction of the documents that uh, the IRS agents, who are now the whistleblowers, uncovered, they found several instances where Hunter Biden was being paid pure income. It was just compensation from Burisma or another foreign client. And then he doctored his records to call this money a loan, and he evaded taxes on that. And so 
many times, according to the IRS whistleblowers, the loan construct was used to cheat the American taxpayer out of tax revenue that Hunter Biden owed. And in the end of the day, the Biden Justice Department, on one of the largest tranches of a fake loan that was actually income, actually decided to let, give Hunter Biden a pass. They have not charged him for uh, tax evasion on $400,000 of income that Hunter Biden and his own lawyers and his own friends wrote in an email in 17, hey, you cheated, you haven't paid these taxes. So Hunter Biden, there was contemporaneous proof. Hunter Biden knew he was cheating on his taxes. The Biden Justice Department gave him a pass. Well, what about the specific check from Jim Biden to his brother, Joe Biden, president now? Yeah. For two hundred thousand dollars, which was written on March first, twenty eighteen. Uh, so that is a very important document. Uh, the Democrats say, "Well, we can show that an entity that had something to do with Joe Biden sent money to James Biden, and then James Biden sends it back to Joe Biden." Now that uh, that's consistent with some of the information that I've gathered. Uh, but there's one problem. If it was in a different corporate entity and then he came back to Joe Biden and Joe Biden put it in his personal account, which is what these records uh, apparently show, we're looking at them, uh, he might have a tax consequence. So that is one of the big questions that Congress is going to ask for. The second part is, all right, James Biden bother, borrowed money from uh, Joe Biden. How did he pay it back? And the answer is he took money from a failing company, uh, a rural health care company, uh, uh, under the auspices that he could trade the Biden family name for foreign business. So another example of foreign influence spending becoming the source of the income that's used to pay back Joe Biden. I don't think many Americans are going to feel very good about that, that, the, that they were taking money from a failing company. And, no, oh, the promise was we'll use the Biden name to open up foreign business, something that Joe Biden claimed never went on back when he was running for election. You know what? I think uh, the play for the Bidens is to pin this all on Robin Ware. It's not it's not the big guy you want. It's Robin Ware. Yeah. That's the guy behind all this. Uh, John, Let's put a bolo out for him. Yeah. <laughs> John, John Solomon is an award-winning investigative journalist. You just understood why with all the work that he's doing. Just the News is an indispensable outlet that he founded, justthenews.com. John, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Uh, great pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is the morning show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's morning answer on AM 560. The answer. This is Chicago's morning answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM 560. The answer. And Amy, so federal district court judge Tanya Hangham High Chutkin, at least Hangham High when it comes to anything January 6th related, uh, you'll note that uh, the good judge has imposed some of the stiffest sentence on those convicted of crimes related to January 6th, sometimes going beyond prosecutors' recommendations in imposing sentence. She uh, reinstituted the gag order on former President Trump. Uh, she agreed uh, based on prosecutors' argument that Trump's recent social media comments about his former chief of staff, that would be Mark Meadows, represented an attempt to influence and intimidate a likely witness in the case. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, Trump responded, I've just learned the very biased Trump-hating judge in D.C. who should have recused herself due to her blatant and open loathing of your favorite president, me, <laughs> geez, has reimposed a gag order which will put me at a disadvantage against my prosecutorial and political opponents, although uh, uh, invective directed toward the judge or his opponent, that would be President Biden, is exempted. He uh, went on to say this order, according to many legal scholars, is unthinkable including the quote-unquote legal scholars at the ACLU, which filed a brief on behalf of Trump, actually. He goes on, it illegally and unconstitutionally takes away my First Amendment right to free speech in the middle of my campaign for president, where I'm leaning against both parties in the polls. Few can believe this is happening, but I will appeal. How can they tell the leading candidate that he and only he is seriously restricted from campaigning in a free and open manner? It will not stand. Will it? Uh, An interesting... Uh, note on this former attorney general Eric Holder Obama's personal attorney you remember yes according to him um, the law and order guy who is famous uh, infamous for things like Fast and Furious uh, getting guns to Mexican drug cartels is infamous for eavesdropping on reporters using the power of the Department of Justice yeah he uh, said that look Uh, Any other defendant would probably be facing jail time for Trump's for what Trump has communicated publicly. However, he also stressed he would be, quote, extremely reluctant, unquote, to put Trump in jail for violating the gag order. Uh, Rather, he suggests fines and the like uh, if and when Trump crosses the line in the estimation of one Judge Chutkin. Well, let's explore that a little bit and the larger uh, context of the state of the Trump trials. George Perry joins us. He's a former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the American Spectator, and he blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. George, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. George? Do we have George? George, There's George. Good morning. Hey, George. Hello. Uh, Hello. So uh, let me have you address this uh, talking point of the left uh, with respect to the gag order that was on, uh, off, on, off, now back on. Uh, With what Trump has said, any other criminal defendant similarly situated would be in prison, would be in pretrial detention. Is that true? No. First of all, there wouldn't be a gag order. Um, and as far as pretrial detention, um, <laughs> this is this is a first. I actually agree with Eric Holder. Um, they'd be crazy to put Trump in prison. I mean, the guy that would just so far every indictment, every lawsuit has done nothing but increase his popularity among the electorate. If they put that guy in prison, just stand back. It, well, it, I, I I agree, but that, but that but that's but that's a political calculation by Eric Holder, who's just a law and order man. Imagine the left uh, <laughs> yeah, contemplating yeah. Uh, politics <laughs> when deciding what to do with respect to the law. Yeah, yeah, Mister Law and Order Eric Holder. Uh, yeah, um, no, it, well, it's I mean that's a political calculation, but uh, look, there wouldn't be a gag order. I don't care what these these judges say; there just wouldn't be a gag order. I mean, I've represented plenty of elected officials and other public figures 
who've been able to say whatever the heck they want about the, the judge, the court, the prosecutor, witnesses. And, you know, that just that's never been a consideration. But now with Trump, they have these gag orders. We not only have the gag order from Judge Chutkin, we have the gag order up in New York from this Judge Ingeron right. in the, uh, you know, that cockamamie uh, civil action that the New York Attorney General has pending against Trump. So, But George, 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 uh, yeah. Trump's comments are undermining people's confidence in courts of law, thereby imperiling our democracy, aren't they? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and the other laugher is uh, he's going to influence the jury pool in Washington, D.C. and in Manhattan. Um, <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> There, there's a fair funny group uh, some of these uh, judges and prosecutors and former attorney generals, a funny, funny group. The And, and uh, as I mentioned, sort of the ACLU weighing in on behalf of Trump with respect to this gag order uh, in D.C. That's a that's a moment. Yeah, that's a sign of the apocalypse. As best <laughs> as I can figure, <laughs> we're in the end times right now when you got the ACLU, ACLU coming out on Trump's behalf. But look, it's, it's such a blatant violation of the First Amendment, this gag order, that even the ACLU had to acknowledge it. How bad is that? Well, they're trying to stop him from campaigning, from getting his voice out there. Don't well, you they want to stop him from campaigning. Yeah. Well, I think I think there's really, on top of the the, the intention behind the gag order, I think that uh, they're really just trying to wear him down to the point where he's just going to throw up his hands. Um, I mean, if you look at what's going on in New York now, uh, in that uh, civil action, the attorney general's office wants to put Trump's children, or they're not children, his his offspring, on the stand and have them testify. Why do they want to do that? What could they possibly add to the case? The case has already been decided by the judge in Manhattan against Trump. So what's the purpose of having Trump's offspring, two sons and daughter, testify in that case? It's a perjury trap. Right. That's all it comes down to. So how do you bring a man to his knees? You go after his kids. I mean, it, it, it's almost a legal form of kidnapping. You know, you, if, if the kidnapper can, you know, can get the parent to do whatever the kidnapper wants. If you want, if you want your, you know, if you want to see your kid again, if you don't want to see terrible things happen to your kid, then do what I tell you to do. That's what we're looking at in this otherwise ridiculous New York case. So, in that in uh, that New in that New York case, uh, assuming as you say that the. Um... The uh, uh, decision has already been reached. Now they're just going through the process uh, to, yeah. legitimize, to try to legitimize it. Um, do you have any doubt that uh, banishing the Trump organization from doing business in New York will be in New York State will be overturned on appeal? Not in the New York court system. I mean, I, I, I mean, the Court of Appeals did put some limits on this this action in terms of how, you know, applying the uh, statute of limitations to certain of the claims, which came as a bit of a surprise. But if they go for the kill shot, 
on Trump's business licenses and just try and absolutely destroy his holdings and his his uh, his uh, operation in New York. I don't see anybody in the New York uh, judicial system, which is political from top to bottom, having the nerve to step forward and put an end to it. But has this ever happened before where they drive a man out of business in the state of New York and in Manhattan? Well, I've I've seen it happen in Philadelphia, uh, but none of my clients were running for president. Um, Look, I mean, what people need to understand is because somebody puts a black robe on and is handed a little wooden hammer and gets up there on the bench, what distinguishes that lawyer from any other lawyer is the fact that he knows the governor or that he ran for election. I mean, in Pennsylvania, we we elect our judges, God help us. And so the whole process in and of itself is political. Well, we do the same in yeah, we do the same in Cook County, and we couldn't have a better judicial system. Of course, I'm kidding. Uh, that's <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, that, another punchline here when we're talking about the criminal justice system. But, but I mean, just I mean, just on the legal aspects of this, if uh, yeah. this is the kangaroo court that it appears to be, couldn't Trump have this removed to federal court and file uh, a civil rights action against the uh, he- attorney general? He could he could try and file a civil rights action after the fact. I don't see how he would get this removed to federal court. Um, I, I don't I don't see that as a viable maneuver. But I mean, what's Trump going to do? What are his kids going to do when they're called to the stand? I mean, this judge is already Trump's already testified once in connection with Judge Ingeron. That's the New York judge. He, he's already testified once in regard to the judge's uh, gag order. And the judges said, I find your testimony to, to not be credible. So we already have one finding that Trump lied under oath. So what do you do when you're faced with that bitter choice? If you, get, if you go in there and say, I'm taking the fifth, I'm not answering any questions. Well, that's political ammunition that you're handing to your opposition. Um, so, I, I mean, look, if I was representing Trump, I would I would. Tell him to. We got to thread the needle here. I just give him a, a pre-prepared statement. You know, this is a political show trial. This judge is corrupt. Has already decided the case. There's no point in testifying. We have a politically motivated and corrupt attorney general who will charge me with perjury no matter what I say. And um, so I'm taking the fifth, not because I'm guilty of anything, but because this is a corrupt proceeding and presided over by a corrupt judge, and anything I say will be used against me by this corrupt attorney general. Or, you know, words to that effect. Now, George uh, Perry, um, yeah. I just wanted to move on, because last week you wrote an article about what killed George Floyd. Have you gotten any pushback from that? And we should tell people, too, they could read it at knowledgeisgood.net. <clears throat> uh, well, I, you know, this time around I didn't. I've been writing about that subject uh, for years now. I mean, right when George Floyd died, as soon as I got a hold of the uh, autopsy report and read it, I concluded that those police officers had not killed George Floyd. As a matter of fact, if you review the body camera video of their interaction with George Floyd, 
they did nothing to harm the man. And as a matter of fact, were quite considerate of him as they're trying to get him into the patrol car while he's still upright and mobile. He's shouting, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Don't put me in that car. So what do these cops do? One of them says, we'll roll down the window. And another one says, we'll turn on the air conditioning. These are the brutal cops that we're being told are so brutal that they choked out this man in front of a crowd with cell phone cameras before effectively the entire world. They did it right out there in the open. That's what we've been told. That's what the state of Minnesota has pushed from day one. And so this article that I did last week was just a recap of what I had written before. This well, a, I, this was a terrible injustice. Well, well, the new information that we have is comes from civil depositions by uh, former, well, by former Hennepin County prosecutors, in which one who filed a, a sexual discrimination suit against the former uh, chief prosecutor in Hennepin County said that mm-hmm. um, the conversation she had with the coroner initially he said that um, I can't find asphyxiation as a cause of death here. And asked her, you know, how do you say something that um, won't be believed by the entire world that has already uh, bought the determination in the public that it was the cops who killed George Floyd? Now, she also, uh, well, prosecutors that testified uh, in that civil trial uh, uh, were deposed in that civil trial. Also did separate this. I, we, we would have gone for second degree <clears throat> murder with, with respect to Chauvin, separating Chauvin yep. from the other cops. He violated procedure. There's other problems with what Chauvin did. But the other cops, they couldn't make out a case. And this was a point of contention between some of these rank and file prosecutors and the, the district attorney there. And so uh, my yep. question is, uh, based on those depositions from former Hennepin County prosecutors, wouldn't uh, the cops not named Derek Chauvin have uh, a pretty good case to demand a retrial? Well, they've been convicted by a jury, a terrified jury in a war zone, I might add. Uh, but they've been convicted, and getting that undone is is going to be very difficult. And, and understand, what came out in that deposition was actually known back as it was happening. The, the uh, medical examiner in Hennepin County, when he published his first draft of his uh, autopsy findings, he said, look, there was no damage to the neck structures There was no sign of asphyxiation, basically, if you read through the whole thing. Um, And what happened? Well, number one, the, the DA or the county attorney was unhappy with that. But then he got the medical examiner got this phone call from the medical examiner in Washington, D.C., a very angry and political man who said, look, you don't want to be the only smart person in the room who doesn't see what's obvious. In other words, get on board with changing your report to indicate that the police killed killed uh, Floyd. And so what the medical examiner in Hennepin County did was he came out with a revised report 
where the physical findings remain the same. But then he just threw in some crazy line about uh, some connection to police subdual, whatever subdual is. And he then got on the stand and testified in effect, well, I, and he admitted this on cross. I couldn't find any physical signs, but my overall conclusion is, you know, this was caused by what the cops did. I mean, it was just a, a stunning performance. And in the course of these depositions you're talking about, the the medical examiner said to the one of the prosecutors, look, what do you do when the physical evidence doesn't match up with the narrative? This is the kind of thing that can end careers. Right. Which was just a perfect statement of chickening out in the face of adversity. And, and he, that's what happened here. Yeah, and he had cardiac arrhythmia, he had high blood pressure, he had hypertension, and he also had fentanyl and meth in his system. And I don't think he, that that was broadcast enough during the trial. Well, it came out on cross-examination. And look, I never want to criticize uh, Nelson, the defense lawyer, because he was the guy in the trenches. I think I thought it took a lot of guts for him to take that case and litigate it in that court and under those circumstances, <clears throat> because basically it was mob rule. Yeah. But that came out, but not in a very effective manner. And what you had really was sudden onset cardiac arrhythmia because Floyd had severe coronary artery disease. He had a history of hypertension. He had enough fentanyl in his system to kill an elephant. And you combine that with the methamphetamine he had in his system, that increases the likelihood of sudden onset cardiac arrhythmia. So there are plenty of other reasons for Floyd to be dead, none of them having to do with what the police officers did. But Minneapolis had been burned to the ground. At the beginning of Chauvin's case, the mayor of Minneapolis forks over $27 million to the Floyd family. Everybody on that jury knew it. And everybody on that jury knew, I am sure, because they're walking in and out of a courthouse that's surrounded by concrete barriers and barbed wire. They knew that if they didn't come back with the conviction, they could be next. So... George Perry, former federal and state prosecutor, regular contributor to the American Spectator. He blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. George, thank you as always. Okay, nice to be with you. Yes, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. First with Sebastian Gorka. Weekday afternoons at 3 on AM 560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, like most Americans, you know, I don't uh, pay attention to what politicians do or the impact of their policy choices. I just listen to what they say. And so I'm remarkably impressed by the Biden Harris administration. I mean, I remember uh, back uh, at the end of the Obama years, the first two terms of uh, the Joe Obama administration, uh, President Biden, then Vice President Biden, cured cancer. Oh, I remember right. when uh, Kamala Harris was uh, was uh, tapped to get to the root causes of out migration from the Northern Triangle countries in Latin America, and uh, she did. 
and we have challenges at the border, but there's certainly not a crisis, and uh, the monitoring is is sufficient. They're very vigilant. Uh, and now we have them turning their attention to the development of artificial intelligence. What's artificial intelligence, you ask? It's AI. Uh, great, great question, and uh, Kamala explains it. AI is kind of a fancy thing. It's, first of all, it's two letters. It means artificial <laughs> yep. intelligence. But ultimately what it is is it's about machine learning. And so the machine is taught and part of the issue here is what information is going into the machine that will then determine, and, and we can predict then, if we think about what, machine, what information is going in, what then will be produced in terms of decisions and opinions um, that may be made through that process. You know, if that baffled you, that's because Kamala is a next-level thinker, so don't expect to understand and, and operate at the level that she's operating. Uh, but the two of them did get together to uh, announce, thankfully, that they're going to make sure uh, that AI or artificial intelligence, as it's, uh, that's what those two letters stand for, you just heard, uh, make sure it's done safely and there's no algorithmic discrimination. Uh, Kamala Harris and uh, the big guy at the White House yesterday explaining, first, uh, the lead dog, Kamala. All to help make sure that the benefits of AI are shared equitably and to address predictable threats, such as algorithmic discrimination, data privacy violations, and deep fakes. We named it the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, after which President Biden and I had extensive engagement with the leading AI companies to help ensure the private sector commits to the principles in the blueprint. Um, wonderful. Again, AI stands for artificial intelligence. Uh, Joe it's Biden uh, was then, then allowed to chime in, uh -oh. and he explained, uh, oh, no. you know, the, the, the reality of uh, just one aspect of what they're covering in this Bill of Rights, the, the deep fakes that can occur. It's already happening. AI devices are being used to deceive people. Deep fakes. Use AI-generated audio and video to smear reputations, speak for spreads fake news, and commit fraud. With AI, fraudsters can take three-second, and you all know this, three-second recording of your voice. I've watched one of me on a couple of times. <laughs> I said, when the hell did I say that? <laughs> oh, all kidding you. aside. Yeah, no, because he's not joking. He never is. Uh, the um, country is fortunate to have such tech-savvy leadership, I say. What does Steve Moore say, economist, Godzilla author? Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Good morning, guys. And I am just so assured and, and reassured that uh, we're in good shape because I found that to be a very prescient um, description of machine, machine learning. I'd never really understood it before. Now now I get it. Thank you, Kamala. There's, there's these machines, and then they <laughs> produce content. Lost. <laughs> yeah. And then they learn from the content they produce and produce more content and so on and so forth. So we need this uh, Bill of now Rights. Now I get it, Dan. See, I didn't understand yeah. that before. Now, uh, I, yeah. I, I got a kick out of uh, the president uh, and, and Kamala saying, you know, we have to make sure that we don't have uh, misinformation and fake news uh, and, and all these things. I'm like, oh, does that mean we're finally going to get rid of the New York Times? Hey, -o. 
Yeah, right. Um, so what about this uh, Bill of Rights, though? I mean, the federal government getting in to shepherd the development of of AI per this executive order to make sure there's no discrimination that AI is developed with yeah. equity in mind. That's the important thing. So here's the thing. I, I, this is a really important little quick history lesson. So back in the, what was it, like the early 90s when the Internet was first invented by Al Gore. Remember that? Yeah, I remember. Um, sure. <laughs> so when the, when the Internet was really just a new thing, and I, I know you've got a lot of young um, listeners who probably, you mean there was a time there wasn't an Internet? Yeah, there mm-hmm. was a time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the government, and, and I'll give Bill Clinton some credit here, um, the government uh, made a really, really good, wise decision, which is very unusual for Washington. What we basically said is we're going to let this be the Wild West. We're going to make it tax-free, we're going to make the Internet regulation-free, and we're going to make it lawsuit-free. And it's just going to be everybody go out there like a land rush and do what you can. And we saw the, you know, the biggest explosion of technology with great, great, massive trillion-dollar companies like Google and Apple and Amazon and da-da-da. And it was an incredible success story. And America led the way in the Internet. And we have you know, the seven largest technology companies in the world are American companies in large part because we didn't regulate it we didn't we didn't put all these restrictions on it we we should not do that with ai this is the next big thing and what's going to happen with ai is so damn exciting i mean i just saw i was at a a conference with one of the leading designers of some of this stuff i mean literally people are going to be able to get up out of their wheelchairs and walk people who you know never were able to move their limbs through this incredible technology we're going to see incredible advances that advance, you know, human well-being. And let's just keep the government out of it. Do you think Kamala Harris should be the policeman of the artificial intelligence? Yeah, but, I mean, there's another aspect of this <laughs> where, you know, people like my pastor feel that AI is going to destroy humanity, that eventually we are going to be replaced by robots. Like, like, uh, like in um, Terminator, right? Right, exactly. Well, I mean, we, it's already happening. Well, it's Our happening Secretary of State's a robot. Hey, yeah. no, but it's happening at like White um, Castle. They're, they've replaced all their fry cooks with robots programmed by AI. And, and you know what's going on? They're more accurate. Uh, service is, in, is increasing as well, as well as order accuracy. Exactly. Exactly. So here's another example. You know, everybody's talking about EVs. And I have my column this week about how, you know, the EV thing is really just a big bust. The, the car companies are make, losing so much money. That's what happens when you have the government leading investment. You know, it, all, it always fails. But uh, you have this situation um, now with uh, that people are forgetting that the next big thing in cars is not necessarily electric vehicles. It is automated cars and they're coming in fact in california they're on the road already and you know 90 percent of accidents um on the roads are due to human error not auto malfunctions so you'll have much more safety people will be able to you know you'll be able to literally push a button you can go anywhere you want you don't have to have mass transit and trains and all this stuff and that's just i mean our lives are going to improve so dramatically over the next 30 or 40 years now look i take your point and i mean there are downsides to this and it is true that you're going to have uh, it's going to be hard to determine what's reality and what's fake because they can do amazing things. They can say down props, say we need more communism and socialism. In this <laughs> yeah, well, that's where you get the watermarks and the other features of this Bill of Rights to ensure that uh, people aren't buff- people like the president aren't buffaloed by uh, these AI work product. I mean, again, I mean, who would you want? 
uh, to shepherd this? Uh, Kamala Harris or you know Sam Altman no. and Elon Musk and and those types of people that that are, you know are just uh, filthy, greedy business persons. Yeah. Well, here look. Here's the thing. It, it's really rich for uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris talking about a new Bill of Rights. What's wrong with the old Bill of Rights? I mean, what, what happened to First Amendment rights, Second Amendment rights, Third Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment rights? All of these things have been shred, and they have a lot of nerve to say, oh, but we're going to have a new Bill of Rights for artificial intelligence. I think the Bill of Rights we have right now will solve a lot of these problems if we would just abide by those Bill of Rights. Hey, you mentioned EVs. Uh, interesting study out of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. The complete costs of fueling an electric vehicle for 10 years amount to $17.33 per, <laughs> per equivalent gallon of gasoline. Um, so uh, the, the $1.21 cost per gallon equivalent that's cited by e- EV advocates excludes all the other costs. Of course it does. Uh, in terms of subsidies, utility ratepayers for energy investments, non-electric vehicle owners for mandate and environmental credit driven higher vehicle costs and so forth. But right. uh, $17.33 per equivalent gallon of gasoline for the EVs, I mean, you know, um, it's going to cost a little bit more to save the world. Except you don't understand, though, that it, that $17 isn't going to be paid by the person, you know, driving the car. Well, it takes it's a village. paid by the government. What, yeah. what, yeah, it takes, it takes a village, takes exactly. a village to we're drive socializing. an EV. Exactly. We're socializing all of these costs. And the, the whole thing is, you know, there's kind of a good cartoon the other day we had in the hotline. It just showed, okay, here's what happens when you have a car that's, you know, uh, that's powered by gas. You know, you have uh, the car and then you have the gas, the, you know, you fill it with gas and then uh, you get emissions out of the tailpipe, right? Oh, no, no, no. We can't have emissions out of tailpipe. That's causing global warming. So instead what we're going to do is have the car, uh, and it's not using gas, it's got a battery, but where did the battery come from? How do we charge that? Oh, yeah, emissions come out of the coal plant or the gas plant. So much better. So much better. Um, I, I did have, uh, I wanted to tackle this with you as well, because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of uh, antitrust laws, but hmm, I got to admit, in this case, I'm tempted the uh, National Association, the National Association of Realtors, just yep. Uh, yep. Uh, was found liable under antitrust under antitrust laws uh, to the tune of almost two billion dollars for conspiring yep. to fix the prices uh, that uh, real estate agents charge the five to six percent commissions that real estate agents charge, and uh, and yep. uh, this uh, turns out to be two to three times as high in other wealthy countries where self-serving yep. industry arrangements yep. don't exist. What? And then, of course, it inflates the price of homes. What's your What's your take on uh, that judgment in that case? Well, I take a lot of pride in this in this decision because you can look this up. When I was at the Wall Street Journal editorial page, that was what fifteen years ago or so, um, and I was uh, one of the first editorials I wrote, and it was took up the whole practical page. Was called the Realtor Racket, and this was one of the first major pieces calling attention to what this kind of price fixing that the real realtor industry has created. And I'm with you. I don't nor, I don't normally like antitrust laws, but these folks have colluded together to stop competition and to force people to pay 6% uh, realtor fees when they buy and sell a house, which is ridiculous. That Those fees should be at most half that amount. And you can't, it, it's almost impossible, you know, if you want to just, you know, buy or sell your home yourself, they don't restrict 
you know, who can see it and things like that. So this is going to save billions and billions and billions of dollars to homeowners and home buyers. It's a good thing. Let's have a little more competition. Uh, this is a true monopoly that the real estate industry has created, these realtors, and it's unfair and it's driving up home costs. And so this is going to lead to more competition. And so I'm thrilled by this. And now let me just uh, you know play devil's advocate, represent yep. the realtors yep. here. Um, yep. They will say, "Look, um, we're we can't tell people, you know, uh, our, our competitors uh, what our commissions are. This is the way to uh, wall off any sort of uh, collusion when it comes to pricing. So it is a competitive model. Realtors can negotiate splits between themselves. They can negotiate lower commissions with homeowners." And so it is It is competitive. It is not uh, collusive. It, it's it's semi. I mean, there's some truth to what you're saying, Dan. And it is semi-competitive. Semi and and the, uh, the stronger argument that they make is, look, the National Retail, Retail uh, uh, Realtors Association, they created something called the MLS, which is the multiple listing. Uh, mm -hmm. And they've created that. And their point is, well, why should anybody just get access to it? We built it. And there's, there's some truth to that. But I'll just tell you kind of a personal story that just e explains a little bit about what a racket this is. So my wife was a realtor, Amy, and she, she was selling homes, but she let her real estate um, license expire. You have to be a, quote, realtor. You have to pass some tests, which is ridiculous, by the way. Why should you have to you know, pass some tests to sell a home or to buy a home? And so she found our house that we live in right now. She found it. We did all the work, blah, blah, blah. So she did all the work that the buying buyer's agent would do and the, and the agent who was selling the house says, no, I'm going to take the 6% commission. Normally what happens is they split that commission, 3% right. for the buyer agent, 3% for the seller. She said, no, I'm taking the whole 6%. And we said, screw you. You didn't do – we did all the work. You didn't do any of the work. And because of the way these, this kind of cartel works, we got screwed out of 3%. Steve Moore. Uh, okay. Uh, not Steve friends Moore. with her anymore. A final word on that. Uh, yeah, the realtors are going to be coming out after Steve Moore, I can tell you that. Uh, They're a powerful lobby. They are oh, a powerful are. lobby. Yep. I mean, I'm going to get a lot of your, your listeners are going to be <laughs> sending me hate mail. No, um, you're used to it. Uh, Steve Moore, economist, Godzilla author. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Okay, and is it true that you're now for socialism and communism? Because I saw that on the internet. <laughs> it's one of those deep fakes that Joe Biden was talking about. Yeah. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So as we heard yesterday from both the Biden administration, all the stars were out before the Senate Appropriations Committee, SecDef Austin and Christopher Wray, FBI director, and of course, animatronic Anthony Blinken, making the case for this holistic, comprehensive approach to foreign aid, $106 billion worth to Ukraine. That's the majority of it to Israel, to Taiwan, to the border. Oh, yeah, sure, the border. Mm -hmm. And uh, McConnell uh, over in the Senate representing the Republicans, at least some of them, 
making the case that, yeah, we're going to do something serious on the border and that'll make uh, Democrats have to swallow hard. So then Republicans who are skeptical of another 60 some odd billion dollars to Ukraine will swallow hard on that. Well, I thought we had an interesting discussion, really good discussion with Leo Leibovitz on yesterday's program. He's the editor at large at Tablet, Israeli immigrant uh, and um, former academic. I mean, he argues that we should not provide funding to Israel. And he's not saying that because we shouldn't be allied with Israel against Hamas and in furtherance of eradicating Hamas. Of course, he believes that. Um, I mean, he had pointed words for what's happening on college campuses and the middling rhetoric of the D.C. press corps. He made a different argument as to why uh, the U.S. shouldn't worry about $14 billion being sent over. They should just focus on uh, sort of the cultural and political leadership that's required to support Israel. Take a listen. I wrote a piece in July calling on America to end uh, military support to Israel right away. Uh, Military support to Israel is really just a form of backdoor subsidy to American defense contractors. Israel doesn't need it. Israel actually loses more than a billion dollars every year simply because it is forced to buy American products rather than develop its own uh, weaponry and and weapon systems. Uh, What I want to see, what I believe so many of your listeners also want to see, uh, is a reality in which no American lives uh, are ever threatened by these conflicts uh, abroad. Uh, I want to see a reality in which Israel is free and unfettered to defend its own interests. I want to see a reality in which America understands who its real enemies are and stands fierce to Iran. And, right, and of course stops funding our enemies as we have done directly and indirectly uh, with Iran, with uh, Hamas, through aid to Gaza that they control, uh, through our energy policy that has enriched Russia and Iran beyond what they would have otherwise realized, thus helping them finance their nefarious activities. Interesting perspective. One more before we get to our next guest. Uh, I uh, interviewed Tom Homan, the former acting ICE director under Trump, uh, for my most recent episode of my counterculture podcast. Really good discussion with Tom. We went on for an hour because he just has so much detailed knowledge of the topic of border security. He served uh, in every presidential administration going back to uh, Reagan. Um, he was actually uh, uh, promoted under Obama, if you can believe that. It's true. Here's what Tom Homan said about being serious about the border. And if he was a GOP member of Congress, what he would demand. Take a listen. Well, there should be zero compromise until we secure this border. Like right now, um, if I was a member of Congress, I was a Republican member of Congress, I wouldn't be sitting down talking about a spending bill. I wouldn't be talking about an infrastructure bill. I wouldn't be giving, I wouldn't be sitting down with the Democrats and negotiate anything until they show me one thing they're going to do is to secure the border. Look. This security board, like I said before, it's just not about illegal immigration anymore. This is the biggest national security failure this country has seen since 9-11. Do something to secure that border. I'm not going to negotiate squat with you. And you know what? Now that we have the house, we have the purse strings, we'll shut it down. Shut the government down. People say, well, that's, well, that's pretty drastic. Well, how drastic does it have to get when we know that no inspector terrorists are being arrested at record numbers on our border? How drastic does it have to get? If, if they can penetrate the most sophisticated wall system Israel has 
which is just as good as our WASP, WASP, actually some of the technology might even be better, if they can penetrate them and they have an intelligence barrier there, you don't think the same thing happened to us, especially when 70 to 90% of the agents are off the line? This is a point, so how bad it's got to get, we're there. So Congress needs to demand action or shut it down. That's my opinion. And uh, he mentioned 70 to 90% of agents are off the line. Yeah, they become paper pushers to process people into this country. So a billion dollars to add more personnel accomplishes nothing with respect to the underlying policy that hamstrings Border Patrol. He went on to say, okay, so here are specific things. I pressed him, but so give me specific things that must be accomplished before you would enter into negotiations about other matters, including this foreign aid that's being debated. Look, what's happening on the border right now is not a resource issue. It's a policy issue. If they would simply go back to the Trump policies that gave us the most secure border in our lifetime, we'd be there. I'd require, you know, uh, restart the Trump policies. They've proven effective. Mandate E-Verify, finish the wall. Then we'll talk about what you want to do as far as future immigration. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Bradley Bowman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Let's start with Tom Homan. Um, What's your reaction to that recommendation? Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, you know, I focus on U.S. defense policy and strategy, and so I don't pretend to be an expert on immigration or border security, but I know enough to know that, um, you know, if we're going to be a nation state that's secure, uh, you got to be able to control who comes into our country. I I did an, I hosted an event at at Foundation for Defense of Democracies on October 11th with the uh, commander of U.S. Southern Command, General Laura Richardson. And one of the things we talked about was Iran's growing activity in Latin America, and, and as well as Hezbollah's activity there. And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if uh, the situation in the Middle East continues to grow worse, that we're going to see growing attempts by Iran and its terror proxies in Latin America to try to come up uh, and get into the United States via our insecure border. So. Uh, you know, I, I agree with him that the uh, you know Israelis, uh, out of necessity, have had to be very good at building uh, border walls. But we saw the failure of their border wall around Gaza on October seventh with horrific results. And so uh, these things are hard. But I agree with him that they're doable if there's the political will. And the primary problem in terms of the U.S. southern border up to this point is not one of a technology or capability, it's political will. So I, mean, I would agree with them on Yeah, that. we learned yesterday from Josh Hawley's questioning with Mayorkas that DHS agents are being pulled off of investigating child trafficking to make sandwiches for illegal immigrants. <laughs> and also a yeah. DHS employee posted an image of a Hamas paraglider with a machine gun flying into Israel, and that person hasn't been fired or suspended. Well, you're right. And actually, yeah, students for the so-called uh, college uh, club called Students uh, for Justice in Palestine took that image of the paraglider that you referenced and sent that around to all their little uh, chapters on universities around the country, uh, you know, celebrating that, encouraging people to come rally for, uh, 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 for, that, for that cause. And, and let's be clear, what did those, those Hamas terrorists and those paragliders do? They went in and and contributed to the largest murder of Jews, single-day murder of Jews since the Holocaust. Right, so it's not a freedom it's really, fighter; it's a terrorist. Exactly, and 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 you know, one only needs to read Hamas's charter to understand that this isn't about a Palestinian state. This is about the extermination of the state of Israel 
and the murder of Jews. So some of the uh, moral confusion that we're seeing around the world in Europe and also sadly on American college campuses and elsewhere is just really, really, um, I, I'd say scary and disappointing. And, is, and I think the permissiveness of a lot of college administrators and some of the things we're hearing some professors saying in places like Columbia, um, it, it leads to some of these horrible things that we've seen, including at Cornell, for example. So uh, what about what uh, Leo Leibovitz had to say uh, about not, not funding Israel, stopping the funding to Israel, as well as Iran and, and Hamas and so forth? But um, the point is, you know, I know that the way that uh, American politicians work is we show our support for something by throwing money at it. But um, uh, Leibovitz is essentially arguing it's doing more harm than good. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know him personally. He sounds like a, a nice gentleman. I, I think he's dead wrong. I mean, I, I think okay. he's dangerously wrong. I, th now, now you're in the center of my wheelhouse, and I'll just tell you, and I hope your listeners are listening, if you support Israel, do not listen to his advice. He is dead wrong. We provide $3.8 billion in foreign military financing each year to Israel. Right now we're providing a lot more. We're, I mean, I, I, get, I get as much detail as you want. We're providing small diameter bombs, joint direct attack munitions, 155 millimeter artillery shells. Here's the bottom line. The gap between the defense budget Israel needs and the defense budget it has is huge and growing. In other words, obviously, as October 7th demonstrated, Israel is not as secure as we would like. In this moment of increased vulnerability for Israel, would it make sense to cut their defense budget by over $3.8 billion? Absolutely not. And, it, you know, and, and the kind of the cynical, cheap, easy to make talking point about it's a handout to American defense company. I mean, give me a break. It's about do you want Israel? Do you believe Israel has a right to ex exist? Do you believe that Israel should have the means to de deprive Hamas and Hezbollah of the means of murder? It, do you believe that Iran is the leading state sponsor of terrorism? If yes, yes and yes, then you want Israel to have the means to defend itself. So why the heck would it make sense in this moment of vulnerability to slash Israel's defense budget? It's really kind of that simple. Well, OK, I mean, uh, just to be clear, though, I mean, Leibovitz obviously believes all those things. He, he's a yes, yes, yes right. on no, those I questions. Mean, he yeah. can be very sincere and good intention. He's just dead wrong. <laughs> OK, uh, I wanted to go to Ukraine. I mean, there was a report earlier this week, uh, unnamed officials in Zelensky's inner circle that are suggesting that the administration and the uh, the def the uh, Ministry of Defense there is beset by corruption. We had talked to Steve Bucci from the Heritage Foundation yesterday, and even he said, you know, otherwise sort of inclined to uh, uh, be supportive of additional aid to Ukraine, that there needs to be a real accounting for uh, how the money is spent, uh, how the money is going to be spent, and then a check on how it was spent. Uh, Mike Johnson, the newly minted speaker, talked about wanting to get some clarity on the end game from the Biden administration before considering support for additional uh, funding for Ukraine. Um, are those fair uh, uh, concerns and criticisms? Um, you know, he, he, they can make those criticisms. I know, Steve, of course, uh, anyone paying attention knows that the Heritage Foundation a place that with strong ties to Ronald Reagan has turned its back on uh, Ukraine. So it's not surprising that you have experts from the Heritage Foundation saying such things. Uh, you know, I worked in the U.S. Senate for nine years. I'm a former military officer. I, I begin with the questions of Ukraine with the following. What is in the American national security interest and what principles are at stake? I would say it's in our interest to deter the largest land invasion in Europe since World War II, which is what we are experiencing. The Biden administration failed to deter that. 
is America neutral or not neutral when when the Kremlin tries to use military force re, to redraw borders in, 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 in Europe? When have we seen efforts to redraw borders in Europe? Uh, it's called World War One and World War Two. Yeah, those are a little different than we are now, but that's that's not some territorial dispute. What what happened? Well, America eventually entered both World War One and World War Two, and more than 500,000 Americans gave their lives. Are there any American service members fighting in Ukraine now? Answer: No. What have we spent uh, on Ukraine? Well, we spent about 44.5 billion dollars in security assistance. The <clears throat> the overall tag is larger than that. So. How is someone listening supposed to say, is that a lot? Is that a little? Well, that $44.5 billion is roughly 3.5%, give or take, of what we spent on the Pentagon over the same time period. So here's the question for your listeners. Do you think it's worth 3.5% to deal body blows to the second leading conventional military threat the United States confronts and without endangering a single U.S. service member and then sending a helpful deterrent message around the world to Beijing, Pyongyang, Tehran, and Kremlin that America will not sit on its hands if you conduct the largest invasion in Europe since World War II. That is a bargain. That is an investment. And frankly, Vlad, you know, these, these Breitbart articles that are being sent around about corruption. Is there corruption in Ukraine? Oh, it's time. It's time. It was time, not Breitbart. There is corruption in the United States as well. Is corruption a problem? Yes, but there is no evidence of large-scale diversion of weapons. You know why? Because they need the weapons to fight the Russian invading forces. So, well, let, let um, me. I, 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 for my part, am not going to be one of someone who echoes Vladimir Putin's talking points because I, I think abandoning. If you don't like the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the consequences that caused, you're really not going to like the failure of Ukraine to defend their country against a Russian invasion. Okay, well, then let me um, get more detail from you. So what does the 60-odd billion dollars do? What is the state of play uh, in Ukraine uh, with respect to repelling the Russians? What, what are we uh, willing to be on the hook for in terms of tell me what it would take to, to put Ukraine in a stronger position than it is now, where it seems, uh, according to some experts, that the June counteroffensive has been degraded into a war of attrition at present? Very fair question, a question I welcome. And you know, game on on the details. You know, so the answer to your question is $61.4 billion. I can break that down into the uh, four or five categories that exist. I don't know if we have time for that, but it's, it's $30 billion for Department of Defense equipment for Ukraine and replenishment of U.S. stocks. And let me just foot stomp that. You know, people who support, oppose supporting Ukraine think they're being real cute and not supporting Ukraine funding. But what they're actually doing, in addition to hurting Ukraine's counteroffensive, they're actually hurting the U.S. military, right? Because the two primary means by which we've provided Ukraine weapons is via U Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, where you contract with industry, and then Presidential Drawdown Authority, where we send weapons from our own arsenal. So some of those weapons have already gone out the door. And by not supporting funding for Ukraine, all you're doing is preventing the U.S. military from replenishing the older equipment that's already sent to Ukraine with newer equipment, thereby hurting U.S. military readiness. But, I, but, I don't know if a lot of your listeners realize that. Okay, that's uh, that's that's an interesting uh, point. Uh, but so then, so then, give us the to the extent that's possible. I know these things are difficult to estimate, but um, w where are we? Uh, where is Ukraine? Uh, what? else will need to be done over what general time period in order to change the seeming trajectory of this 
uh, effort to repel the Russians. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, thank you for repeating that. I, I didn't want to talk too long, but I'm absolutely happy to answer that. Here's the bottom line. There's a huge gap between what Ukraine, this will sound familiar, what I said earlier, just happens to also be true in Ukraine. There's a huge gap between what Ukraine needs and what it has to evict Russian forces from all of Ukrainian territory, including Crimea. So I do not see a quick and short path to that outcome. Why? Well, it's because the Russian military is pretty good at World War One style combat with drones, and that's and a lot bigger. And and they're and 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 they Vladimir Putin doesn't give a darn about throwing young Russians into the meat grinder. He does not care. He does not have the concerns that the Ukrainian democratic leaders would have about loss of life. And they can do artillery warfare till the cows come home. So the only thing that is certain, in my opinion, is if we stop supporting Ukraine, you'll see some sort of Ukrainian defeat. So, you know, in our microwave culture here in the U.S., we want a solution tomorrow. Sorry, sometimes there aren't quick solutions. But what is certain is if we abandon Ukraine, a lot of our European allies will follow and you will things will only get worse there. And you can put and you could eventually see the collapse of a major European capital. That's failure. So, you know, this ending endless war narrative, it's a little bit silly, right? Because there's not a single American fighting in Ukraine. So the bottom line is, if we want to have a negotiated solution, I would say you want Ukraine to be as powerful as possible going to that solution. And, and you will simply undercut that, the Ukrainian position, and empower Putin if you deprive Ukraine of the resources it needs. So, you know, I worked on the Hill for nine years. The first, you know, if you don't like a policy, the first thing you talk about is oversight and accountability. It, you know, yes, there's always room for improvement. But the bottom line is we're, we're confronting an unprovoked Kremlin aggression against a beleaguered democracy. How does America feel about that? How does that affect our interests? And what will Beijing conclude if America, after a year and a half of making a good show for it, says, you know, we kind of lost interest. We, we don't really have the staying power. How does that inform their decision in Taiwan? And I'll tell you, if we don't want to send our sons and daughters to war in the Taiwan Strait, don't ignore the deterrent message that we will send to Beijing by a failure to do to, to stick with Ukraine uh, for the medium term. So can we afford 3.5% for Ukraine? For the next five to 10 years? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And, but that doesn't mean I see a, a victory next week. And anyone who's saying we, there, there will be is not telling you the truth. Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Bradley Bowman, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your perspective. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560, The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So uh, over the last uh, couple of shows, we've given you the wide range of thoughtful opinion on aid to Ukraine and Israel, now throw in Taiwan and this uh, border funding SOP that uh, the establishment in D.C. is trying to use to leverage Republican support mainly for funding Ukraine. Uh, John Mearsheimer from University of Chicago. Uh, you've heard from Steve Bucci at the Heritage Foundation. You've heard from Leah Leibovitz from Tablet. And you just heard from Bradley Bowman from the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy sort of running the gamut from uh, yes to no, <laughs> yes, uh, an unequivocal open-ended yes to a unequivocal no at this point for a variety of reasons. So uh, where do you come down after 
hearing and processing those various views. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You can also text us at 646-36, type in DA, then a quick comment. Amy, would you like to No, I'm good. Begin? I would love to hear what people have to say. All right, let's start with Alex and Winfield. You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Hey, Dan, Amy, you guys are fantastic. Um, thanks for taking my call. But uh, I'm in shock that, uh, you know, you got someone as great as uh, Bradley Bowman on there. Holy cow. Uh this guy, you know, he's, he's talking to us uh, plebes down here and dropping to 3.5% of the, the Pentagon budget. I mean, come on. There's three types of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Well, okay, but I mean, but, but I mean, he's right in terms of the $61 billion. I mean, I mean, this is a federal government that spent last year $6.3 trillion. Um, and, of course, the Pentagon is uh, north of seven hundred billion 800 billion so i mean he's not wrong about the relatively small amount of money in the great expanse of what the federal government spends and even if you um argue uh that this money can be culled from as mike johnson wants to do with israeli funding uh pull 14 billion dollars that was allocated to the irs you pull money from here pull money from there so you hold the overall spend harmless at the federal level i get, get i mean so He's right about the money, but to me, it's not really as much about the money as it is the overall geopolitical positioning of America and the judiciousness of our ongoing open-ended engagement. And that's where I think we need to have our discussion. I mean, you you understand that. What about that, though? He said he shrugged off 18 months like, oh, it was only 18 months. Is is 10 years long enough? 20 years? When do we draw the line and say, you know what, we got to protect our own border? Thanks for the call, Alex. Well, right. I mean, he did say, uh, you know, that level of spend, um, I mean, I don't know on an annualized basis, but that level of spend, he did use the window of five to 10 years, which Please. may which may be underestimating it. I just don't trust our government. I don't trust anything they say. And if they say, you know, oh, no, this package, you know, funds Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan and our border. Our, our border is last on that priority list, and it should be the first thing on our priority list. Well, and the other thing, I mean, per Tom Homan's comments, you know, um, it's not a resource issue at the border. It's a policy issue. So the billion dollars to buy off support in the belief that that's going to do something material at the border, it's not. No, hiring 1,500 more agents is not going to stop the problem. Not if you just have oh, them push problem. paper around desks and, as you said, make sandwiches for migrants as opposed to patrol the border. It's certainly not in addition to the infrastructure that needs to be built and so on and so forth. So that's the, you know, part of the reason people don't trust is because you have a sleight of hand uh, gambits perpetrated on the public by the Mitch McConnell's of the world that pretend this billion dollars for 1,500 agents is material. And it just isn't with respect to the overall goal of border security. And so when you're lying to me and when you're not being honest about how we've gotten ourselves into these sticky wickets by funding effectively all sides, as I keep saying, then, you know, I have a little problem trusting your intentions as well as your assessments when it comes to this latest package. And you should see the thousands that are on the way here, Dan. Oh, my God. Well, of course they are. I know, but it's just they're trying, the Democrats, I think, are just trying to grow their base, grow their party. And that's why people are, you know, 
all over the place in Chicago. It's just disgusting. It's not even sanitary. The other thing McConnell said yesterday is, you know, we shouldn't be sending money to New York and Chicago. Well, of course, uh, I agree with that. But that's but, that's still part of but that's still part of a misdirection play. We also shouldn't say that a billion dollars for fifteen hundred agents is going to do something different. We than what's happening at the border now. We should be talking about the policy choices and the policy changes that need to be made as an opener for negotiation, as Tom Homan said. I think I think Homan is over the target if you want to prioritize border security in a meaningful way. Kevin, Libertyville. Good morning, Dan, Amy. How are you guys? Listen, um, if you're trying to convince me to uh, see your side and I catch you in a lie, I think the discussion is over. When he stated that it's important to support Ukraine because if you don't support Ukraine, you're not supporting America's military because our weapons systems need to be replaced. We have a defense bill that takes care of American weapons. We don't need to send Ukraine money right there. That's a bold-faced lie that he should have been taken down on right away. Then when he calls Ukraine a bastion of democracy, are you kidding me? This guy has had his uh, journalists who don't agree with him, uh, uh, arrested. He's shut churches that don't, that don't support him. And then he glosses over accountability by saying, oh, you know, we can always do better. Well, we have a president that has legitimate charges against him for laundering money from foreign countries. One of them happens to be Ukraine. And he is just saying, you know, oh, we could do better and we shouldn't worry about that. Sorry, if you're trying to convince me to your side and you lie repeatedly, it's done. I, I, I yeah. I Thanks was- for the call, Kevin. Appreciate it. Um, there, this uh, continuation of uh, presenting Zelensky as some sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, right. small L uh, liberal, peaceful pluralist. Um, it, it is belied by the actions that he's taken, some of which Kevin just mentioned, and. So it makes it hard for people to get past that to say, okay, well, he's an imperfect actor and that's an imperfect kleptocracy. But still, we have to make an assessment between imperfects. And do we want to support the imperfect Ukrainian regime in repelling the Russians, which presents a much greater threat to uh, stability in the West? But but I understand. I understand if you're telling me somebody is something that they're not, then it makes it very difficult for me to – to trust you. Let's call things what they are and then let's make hard-headed decisions about what's in America's best interests. I, 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 that's a fair criticism. Matt on the South Side. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. My biggest problem with that last interview was that guy kept saying that if we don't stick with Ukraine, we're going to show weakness as far as China trying to take over Taiwan. And I think that's totally incorrect. I think China, if they decide to go into Taiwan, the biggest reason for that is because of Biden's weak posture on the world stage. I don't think it has anything to do with sticking with Ukraine. I think it has a lot more to do with how Biden looks and how he's perceived by world leaders throughout the, throughout the entire world. That's all i got to say. Thanks for the call, Matt. Uh, I think that's a fair point, too. Uh, really, uh, Xi and, and the Chinese communists are looking at America, oh, if we send $60 billion to Ukraine, that's some sort of lasting deterrent effect. I mean, they could look at it another way, too. Okay, this is a weak president trying to make sure Ukraine doesn't fall before November of next year. So that's not much of a deterrent, is it? Not to mention what 
the Chinese communists have seen, not just in Afghanistan, but with this other problem that is largely of our creation, appeasing Iran uh, in the Middle East, for example. So you really think this will impress uh, a lasting deterrent effect on the Chinese communists with respect to their aims on Taiwan and everything else in their pursuit of uh, global hegemony? That seems unlikely to me, too. Uh, Merck in Princeton. Hello? Hi, Dan. Yep. Hey, good morning. I've been listening for about 13 years, and never in my life have I heard a, um, a spokesman for Raytheon, General Dynamics, um, Lockheed, uh, pick your military contractor, ever speak. That guy's a clown. And to think that we don't have military advisors in country or a nice word for military advisor is special forces or uh, technical specialists. When you send over an Abrams tank, you don't just drop it off and say, here you go. Uh, that guy, he's a war profiteer. That's all he is. All right, Mark. Thanks for the call. Mike and Hammond. Hey, thanks, Dan, for taking my call. Yeah, when this, this guy really lost me when he says, oh, we should be willing to support Ukraine's next five to ten years through attrition alone. We're going to have troops on the ground, and then he said we could get Crimea back. Crimea is never coming back. And if that means if we draw out, that means the European countries will, will draw out. Well, well, it's on their doorstep. So it's it, they have to be willing to step up a lot more than us. But I, eventually, our, our troops on the ground are going to happen if this goes a few more years. Thanks for the call, Michael. That's uh, Mearsheimer's concern, even though he. Uh, cited as a remote possibility at present. Uh, I guess the argument to play devil's advocate on behalf of Bowman would be uh, you show uh, a stick to with respect to Ukraine and they continue to impose significant costs on the Russians, which they have, then at some point you're going to compel Putin to the negotiating table and uh, be able to negotiate some sort of armistice. That's a theory. Philip, Blue Island. Well, I'll just say no to both, especially with Ukraine, because literally, I just believe they're still in the money. Um, and and as far as strategic defense of America and NATO and all these different types, I, I, I just don't know about a lot of that. Uh, but when it comes to um, Israel, um, I think they're in, like in the midst, damn near in the midst of a civil war. Uh, they're in the midst of a genocide. Um, I believe that, uh, not Hamas, but Palestine has a right to uh, defend itself for the Palestinian people. Um, and again, it's Hamas that they're fighting. It's not like they're fighting a major uh, military. And, you know, now we're going to throw another 150, well, we give them 150 billion every year anyway. And now another 50, wow. 60, 70 billion. When is it in? We give, we give them like 3 billion, but okay. Uh, thanks for the call, Philip. Uh, I've, I've got a little technical difficulty here. Let's go to Joe in Lake Geneva. Dan, hi, Amy. Hello. Um, you know, you know, I'm always, I've always been a financial guy, and I guess one question I've got is, you know, over a trillion dollars in debt, and a lot of that is to the Chinese, and nobody ever seems to ask, you know, ask, you know, when is this going to stop? I mean, you know, you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars more in aid. And I mean, we have to keep borrowing to do it. Doesn't anybody see that as a threat to our eventual national security? Uh, thanks for the call, Joe. Let's go to Tom in Blue Island. 
Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, I'd piggyback on what Amy said, that there's a specific distrust in what goes on in the government in this country. What I would disagree with the other callers is, uh, Dan, unlike the questioning you gave, which was specific and you were trying to get specific answers, there's no specific questions and there's no specific answers. We've been called election deniers. We said we wanted millions of people to die if they didn't want to get vaccinated. So the answer is we don't trust them. And so if, if he wants to make his case, then the government ought to be making it in public as opposed to just saying, if you don't fund Ukraine, you're a Putin stooge. And once you call somebody a Putin stooge, you lose them in the argument. So if they want the funding, that's great. If they can make the argument that it's valuable, fine. But you got to make the argument. You can't just say, do what we say or else you're a, you know, a traitor or something. Thanks for the call, Tom. Mike in his car. <laughs> Hello, yeah, Mike. Hi, Mike here. Yeah, hi, Mike. Uh, Mike here, uh, uh, Dan and Amy. I'm a first-time caller, and I just wanted to say, you know, I totally disagreed with that speaker um, as, as far as the wars go because basically we're fighting what we're funding with our terrible energy policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're basically... We're basically making Iran and Russia richer with our terrible oil policy because when Trump was in office, we had we had uh, uh, energy independence. We were drilling our own oil, fracking. We were we had the Keystone Pipeline going, uh, getting oil from Canada. We were actually exporting oil, making oil cheaper. Gas was a about a buck eighty eight a gallon, and with our terrible energy policy, all, all the uh, uh, oil prices have spiked. And we're basically funding these wars for Russia and, and Iran by uh, making oil expensive and making them rich, whereas before they were getting poorer and poorer. So we, we, we can fight these wars all we want and send them weapons and equipment, and we're paying for it all in our terrible energy policy. That's a good point. Thanks for the call, Mike. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.